The second thing you got to think a lot about is your people, right? I mean, it is, uh, it's a different world in terms of, uh, it's certainly an employee-driven world at this point, and more and more people are coming back into the workforce, but slowly, you know, coming off of COVID, and, uh, and there's worker shortages everywhere. All right, gang, let's get started. I want to welcome everybody to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, which is uh, sponsored and produced by the VOCA Center. And uh, we're delighted to have you all with us today and our guest, Greg Brenneman. So we're going to jump right in today, and Sarah is going to introduce Greg. Absolutely. Greg Brenneman is our guest today. He is the executive chairman of CCMP Capital, a large private equity firm. He serves as the lead director of the Home Depot and is on the board at Baylor College of Medicine and a number of CCMP portfolio companies. Prior to that, he led turnarounds at Continental Airlines, Burger King, and PwC Consulting by dramatically improving customer service, employee satisfaction, profitability, and financial returns. Greg is an Emmy winner and the author of Right Away and All at Once, Five Steps to Transform Your Business and Enrich Your Life. And his latest venture is as a restaurateur, expanding the Portovino brand throughout Houston. Greg, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Sarah. It's good to be here back with all of you and uh, back on the other side of the pandemic, at least uh, yeah. what we hope is the other side of the pandemic. Which well, is you've been on the other side of the pandemic for, what, 18 months? I yeah, in Texas, in Texas. Yeah, I know it's uh, that we, we, we had COVID for a few months and then we decided we didn't have COVID anymore down here. <laughs> hey, Greg, I, let's start with the restaurant project. That was, uh, that was a fun, fun surprise to read. I think you sent it out in your Christmas letter that it was on tap. So where'd that come from? How's it going? What are you learning? Yeah, we, we've been open about a month, uh, and uh, the restaurant's Portovino, and really anchored around two basic things, uh, and then I'll tell you the story how it started. Uh, it's anchored around just fantastic Italian food. Uh, there's a chef down here. Uh, he's a chef of Patente, which is the best Italian restaurant in town, by the name of Danny Trace. And before Patente, Danny was the executive chef at a restaurant called Brennan's, which is the Brennan family from New Orleans, but the restaurant of the branch here in Houston. And before that, at Commander's Palace in New Orleans, which I think is still ranked as one of the top five restaurants in the world. So fantastic food, no item over $29 and uh, kind of casual Italian uh, menu. And then the, uh, the really amazing thing is um, it's one of these places where you can bring your own wine. And so there's a corkage fee of $12 for the first bottle, 11 for the second bottle if you want to bring your own wine. But the guy that started it, Bill Floyd, who's a really dear friend of mine, actually put together a wine list uh, of many wines that you would actually know, fantastic wines. And he actually decided he was going to sell wine for less than the discount wine stores. So you can actually buy it for less than you can get, you know, any, any discount wine store. And... Uh, and about, you know, most restaurants mark up wine about 300%. The markup here is about a ten tenth of that, about 30%. So it's underneath the discount wine places. And so we're kind of half restaurant, half wine store. People will come in and have dinner and then take two cases of wine home with them, which is uh, kind of fun. So we'll load it up and put it in their car. And uh, so we're just, we're open about a month. We're just getting going here. Uh, and uh having fun with it. The guy that actually called me and asked if I would do this with him uh, was a guy by the name of Bill Floyd. And when we were turning around Continental, our food was so bad that one of our directors actually put a meal in a FedEx package and sent it to me overnight. 
and said, hey, I think you ought to fix this. We were fixing a lot of things, but for international first class, business first service, we, uh, we as many of you have been on United now, but Continental before that, same product. We actually brought in, I brought in the chefs from uh, Houston and Cleveland and New York, the best ones, and then Hawaii. So one chef from each of the hub cities. The chef in Hawaii was Roy Yamaguchi, who started a chain off of that called Roy's off of all the publicity and ultimately sold it to Outback Steakhouse for $400 million. At the time I brought him on, he was just a good friend. He had one restaurant. And, uh, and so now when I go to Hawaii, I eat free at Roy's anytime I want with Roy. But, but, uh, but uh, it's fun. But the, the, the restauranteur here in Houston, who's opened 31 restaurants that we brought in at that time, uh, was, uh, was a guy by the name of Bill Floyd. And Bill has opened 31 restaurants in Houston. So he actually is 68. He opened this restaurant as a place he could drink wine with his buddies and have some good food. And um, uh, he decided, uh, he called me and he said, I think I finally did what you asked me to do. And I said, what was that? He said, well, in the 1990s, you said, why don't you do something you can do two of? You've done all these one-off restaurants. And he said, I think I might have done that by accident. And so um, uh, we're open in the evenings from uh, 5 to 9 on the weekdays. And then uh, on the weekends, Friday and Saturday, 5 to 10. And uh, just a great place to bring, you know, a group and sit out and enjoy some good wine and some good food and, and uh, enjoy people. So really opened it up as kind of a goofing off project. And, uh, you know, if it goes well, we'll add a few more. But uh, but it's just kind of fun. So uh, also teaches you a lot about How business. How are you, like, involved with it, Greg? Like, what do you, like? Well, I hired, what, some, what I hired some folks to manage it. But when I'm in town, I'm there every day. Uh, so there's a lot of details to running a restaurant. You know, I ran Burger yeah. King for a while. So uh I know a little bit about it, and uh, and uh, the hardest part has been we actually have the, hired this fantastic young lady who came from Honduras in 2007. We knew her as our best waitress, uh, our best uh, server in, in the woodlands, and so my wife said, hey, we have to hire her to be manager of this ultimately. So we hired her and somebody that could do a few of these and brought them in. And she pretty much staffed up the kitchen and no, no problem. So our kitchen is operating incredibly well, the back of the house. The front of the house on the servers, that takes a little more time to kind of build your server, you know, uh, numbers and network. And so kind of given the employment environment, we're still in the process of kind of making sure we have enough uh, and the right kind of servers that can offer the right kind of ho- hospitality. And then in the restaurant, it's pretty cool. We do a lot of missions work. One of the uh, projects we do is in Honduras where we, drive water to people and then set up communal farming. And so we're actually using the Honduran coffee in the restaurant. And uh, we have pictures of the co-op we set up where these small farmers come in and we process organic coffee and export it to the US and Europe. So uh, we're kind of integrating some of the missional things we do as well with the restaurant. And uh, it's been kind of fun. So we're- we're, And how's your family involved? Uh, my, my oldest son is actually learning from Bill Floyd uh, on the wine side. So he's handling all the, we sell a lot of wine. So he's handling, uh, he's ha- in a lot of wine to go as well. He's, uh, he's handling all of that. And, uh, and the other kids are, uh, you know, are, you know, tiptoeing around playing a little bit of a role and sort of seeing what they can, uh, they can do. But, uh, so it's been a fun, it's been a fun project. We'll see, we'll see if it amounts to anything, but, uh. For now, we're just goofing off and having a good time. And it's a great service for the community. It really gives you an opportunity on a very different level to kind of minister to people because uh, there's a, end up about 30 employees in one of these restaurants. So it's a lot of, a lot of lives you can touch. Yeah. Yeah, it's creating jobs, which 
Absolutely. Think, you know, been near to your heart all along. Yeah, no, I think, you know, as, as business people, we're called to do that. And uh, it's certainly done that at a big level. This is actually at the micro level doing it. And you actually learn it even in Texas, which is very friendly to business, right? You learn about all the bureaucracy that exists and just how hard it is to, uh, you know, run and create a small business. It's, uh, it, it, it's amazing how difficult people you know, make that, you know, even in a place where it's probably as easy as anywhere in the country. So for those of you who are in New York, I, uh, God bless you. You know, I, I know it's twice as hard. So it's a, it's a mountain to climb for sure. Well, that's awesome. Um, everybody needs to stop by. Yeah, no, if you come, let me know you're coming and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make sure I'm there and can say hi or somebody is anyway. Portavino, right? Portavino, portable wine in Italian. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, that's a great foray just into into my next question for you, Greg, which is how much do we need? You know, what's the demand for resilience in today's business climate? And uh, give it a score. Give it a score from one to 10, 10 being very, very high, intense, or one being basically not at all. And then let's just talk about the rating. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say probably probably an eight. You know, we went through the pandemic and we talked about that actually, you know, a uh, year or so ago. And that, re- that was more kind of turnaround-ish, right? Trying to figure out what was going on, trying to get you know, your beat on what's happening. I don't think figuring out what's going on is as hard anymore, right? I mean, we kind of are learning how to live with this pandemic thing, but we are in a really weird time in the economy. Um, uh, for you financial geeks, you saw the two-year yields now exceed the 10-year yields. That's normally a sign recession is coming. We'll see if that plays out to be true or not, but but it feels kind of that way. And some of us, I'm, you know, I know kind of looking at some of the folks on the call here are, are not old enough to know this, but a few of us are old enough to remember the days of Jimmy Carter's presidency and high inflation. But when you have inflation that's running as high as it is now uh, and labor shortages at the same time, you really end up in a weird environment. If you can pass along that inflation in terms of price increases, like you're, you're next to the end customer. Home Depot would be like that. A pool company we own would be like that, where you can pass along, pass along the, uh, the prices. You tend to be a little insulated because you just keep raising price as fast as you can to kind of keep up with your employee, your wage costs going up, your supply costs going up. If you're stuck in the middle of the sandwich somewhere where your costs are going up, but you're actually selling to somebody like a Walmart or a Costco or a Home Depot, and it takes a while to recover, you know, to get them to raise, you know, your the the amount they're going to pay you, and for you to pass those price increases on, boy, you can really get stuck in the middle of that sandwich, and so it's a very awkward time from a pricing slash market perspective. We got used to kind of an environment where wages go up two or three percent and prices go up. Inflation's two or three percent, and everything kind of balances out. You get a little bit more productive. Twenty years of doing nothing but that. I mean, it, it was pretty straightforward. Now we got prices going up, depending on the industry, anywhere from say five to fifteen percent, and uh, your cost structure, you know, really getting uh, getting squeezed a little bit. So I think just in that macro perspective, it's a it's a difficult time. Uh, and uh, that's driving things like mortgage interest rates up. And now you're starting to see demand. I, I was talking to a CEO this morning of a big um, uh, sort of uh, freight uh, company, one of the biggest freight companies uh, you know, that are doing deliveries and stuff. And they say just for the first time, they're starting to see demand wane just a little bit. 
and they've, they're fighting massive supply chain battles because Shanghai's basically shut down now, so the ports over there are shutting down again. So you're also seeing some sea changes in terms of near sourcing materials where you might have gone to China or somewhere in Asia. People are saying, I'd like my supply chain a little bit closer to me, particularly on for time-sensitive products. So um, I don't know that I've seen this much change in the general business environment in a really very, very long time. So it, it'll, it'll be, uh, be interesting. But it wouldn't shock me if at uh, back half of this year we, we saw a bit of a recession uh, you know, come on. Uh, the government's not helicoptering money out anymore. And, uh, you know, if you think about the main costs for most people, it's it's gas prices, right? It's utility costs and it's food. And all of those are inflating at a pretty clip, fa faster clip than wages by a bunch. So it's a very regressive tax. You know, I saw a stat that uh, the average cost per family of those three things is up $5,200 a year. And, you know, wages aren't kind of keeping up with that. So you start seeing a little bit of demand compression on the consumer side. So uh, I think we're early days of all that. But it's a, it, I think you need a lot of resiliency and you need to kind of think through, you know, think through how you manage through this kind of environment. We haven't seen it since Jimmy Carter. So we got Jimmy Carter, too, here. And, and that's kind of rocking through our government. And, and, uh, and the Fed is a little bit behind the curve in getting on top of all that. And how, how optimistic are you that the Fed will make the right play? I think they're trying. I think they're so far behind right now, kind of where they need to be. Uh, they went up 25 basis points this last time because I think that's what the market expected. I'd be shocked if they... Remember, inflation last, last summer, last fall, was going to be transitory. That was the line coming out of Washington. And we all knew... I mean, I started changing my investment strategy knowing that that was complete, you know, garbage. But I mean, it was just political. But, you know, eventually it didn't take long for that to come home to roost. Now we actually are in this environment where, um, uh, you know, the Fed should have probably been raising interest rates the end of last year, you know, maybe earlier this year. They, and they should have gone up a little faster. They're just a little behind the curve. But I, I, I think where they were saying six months ago we were going to have maybe two rate hikes uh, this year. Now they're saying six. Right. And it yeah. wouldn't surprise me if we didn't, uh, you know, have some 50 basis point rate hikes instead of just, you know, 25 basis points. So I think mortgage interest rates are just under 5% now for the 30 year fixed. That's still historically pretty low, but I think we're going to see a number much higher than that before we're done. So even though it, so it sounds terrible to refinance your house, if you haven't done it yet, you probably ought to. So Right, because it's going to go one way. Um, yeah. So we've got We've got inflation, and we've got supply chain. Are there other, other trends you're kind of tracking? The other one I'd add is just as part of inflation, I guess, but it's energy, right? Hmm. Energy, uh, you know, we went through this period of time, and I don't know where you kind of sit on all this. I'm just going to talk fact for a second here. We went through this period of time where everybody thought the world was going to convert to wind and solar, and we weren't going to have carbon, you know, uh, anymore. And Larry Fink was writing all those letters, and John Kerry was flying around in his private jet over to Europe talking about all this stuff. I, uh, you know, I've told those guys I wish they'd keep that up because every time they do, my oil and gas stocks go up. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> but I think uh, we were already seeing, uh, you know, the the energy shortage coming out of COVID kind of hit us in our fuel prices to begin with, and then uh, and it was going up significantly. And then, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine, which is such a sad story. It's hard, you know, I mean, it's terrible. 
But it's getting but, sadder. But but you're a you're a pad under Angela Merkel in Germany primarily. They had an energy policy that could best be described as brain dead for the last fifteen years, right? Where they just had more and more dependency creating on on Russia, you know, and on the fuel coming out of Russia. And they just came out a month ago now and said that uh, they've decided natural gas and nuclear are both green fuels. So they're getting kind of redefined under that umbrella of, uh, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, carbon neutral kind of uh, process. And if you really track the whole uh, uh, Green New Deal carbon movement, um, the, the biggest thing we can do to actually get to carbon uh, net zero, which I think would be pretty important for us to do, is to substitute natural gas for coal. That's the single biggest thing, electric vehicles, and there's some other things after that, but that's the single biggest thing. So I think there's also kind of this reality setting in in the world of uh, producing these batteries is pretty pollutive, you know, for all this electric stuff. Uh, when you consider it all comes from China and Russia and it ta they produce it using coal power to do it. Uh, and then you kind of back up and you say, you know, we're going to be energy short here for probably the next three or four years in the country. Not our country, but the, in the world. And uh, unfortunately, the developing world is really going to get squeezed hard by that. So um, that they get hit first. So and the same thing on the food side. So this Russia invasion, the Ukraine and geopolitics is is playing a role, too. And I, I'm not trying to sound like a pessimist. It just all breaks into this, you know, the need for resilience and yeah. the need to think a little bit differently. Yeah, those would be the, the three primary factors, I think. You know, this is an important conversation for every one of us who either is a leader or aspires to be one. And we know that leadership can be a lonely road, and that's why Sarah and Ken are going to tell us about VOCA's unique solution to leadership isolation. Ken and Sarah? If you're a leader in your organization, then you already know it can be lonely at the top. And often leaders feel isolated from the organizations they lead because they can't talk safely about what's really going on in their heads and hearts. For Christians, it can be even harder to find business support and personal encouragement from a faith-based perspective. Our executive circles provide that kind of opportunity, Ken. These small groups of four to six members, they meet throughout the year and they take you deeper with peers who want to both drive superior business outcomes and honor their faith at the same time. Executive Circle members learn to lean on their community of peers for the courage to lead in innovative and authentic ways. Could an Executive Circle be right for you? Contact us at vocacenter.org coaching for a free consultation to match you with a group that's right for you. Now let's get back to our conversation. So as you think about as you think about thinking, you know, differently thinking with resilience. What do, what do you think? What are things that you think leaders should be thinking about and pondering in this landscape? Yeah. Well, I think you know, for one thing, you got to kind of understand what your factor costs are and and you know what's coming in and and how you get ahead of that. So, you know, I think yeah, pricing becomes you know where you didn't have to think about it much. You got to think a lot about it. The second thing you got to think a lot about is your people, right? I mean, it is, uh, it's a different world in terms of, uh, it's certainly an employee-driven world at this point. Uh, and more and more people are coming back into the workforce, but slowly, you know, coming off of COVID. And, uh, and there's worker shortages everywhere. So you really, really have to think about holistically, uh, I think, and, and in, a, in a godly fashion, how do I 
if, if I wasn't actually, you know, investing in my people before, you know, in, in their faith, their family, their friends, fitness and finance, the five Fs, how do mm -hmm. I actually think about doing that now in a, uh, in a productive way so that I can, uh, I can maintain your, my best employees, you know, and mm -hmm. what's important to them and how do I think through it? And I think that differs a little bit by industry, but so I think pricing, you got to think through differently. And I think, uh, your workforce you have to think through pretty differently. It's really interesting to watch the two companies that, you know, sort of had these uh, these uh, employee policies that, you know, people were saying, well, they, they'll, they're, they're perfect for employees are Starbucks and Amazon, right? And mm -hmm. they both just got, you know, big union votes, right? So I, I, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm not saying anything about those companies. I think it just is indicative of the environment we're in and the need to think through kind of holistically how do you how do you value people how do you how any, do you how do you make the job more than just a job any shifts that you're you're seeing and or experimenting with either in your portfolio company side or in the home depot side yeah i'd say on the on the portfolio side and stuff i i stay uh, even closer to the ceos on the on this kind of thing so i'm doing a lot of top to tops with our CEOs and their best customers, other CEOs, uh, to talk through and think through these kinds of, uh, these kinds of issues way much, much more than ever, ever before. So there's a, a lot more conversation around, you know, this and, and how, uh, and, and kind of what you need to do and how you need to, to think through it. Uh, the Depot side is interesting, and I credit you know the founders of Home Depot and the CEO of doing this. We run this inverted pyramid that starts with customers on the top, and then the store associates, and then the store manager, and then the, the store support center, which is headquarters, and then the CEO. And we've always had that. The founders gave it us to that in the late 70s. And so we're always trying to think customer back, and then how do we treat the people? And so... When, uh, i give you an example, when the financial crisis hit in 08, 09, everybody was cutting their merit pay increases and their 401ks. We did not do that at Home Depot. We kept going with all that stuff. So, is, and the same thing here when COVID hit, we, we did a lot of things to put extra money in the associates' pockets, uh, billions of dollars worth, just because it was the right thing to do. And um, that actually buys you some credibility in terms of you know, managing through situations like 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 we're in today so um we, we always trying to ask that question thinking customer back to the 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 store associates the orange-blooded associates uh how do we how do we actually handle that in the best manner that's great that's a great visual inverted pyramid yeah that's really helpful um if we flip the script around a little bit and we think about the employees that are listening to this you know people that work for somebody else and they may have a somewhat of a negotiating advantage right now uh, but there may be a contraction on the horizon in the economy. What, what kind of advice do you, do you have for them? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, be cautious in what, you know, what you want and what you ask for. I mean, be thoughtful as well. I think we're actually stewards, you know, work and, uh, and faith are so tightly intertwined. Uh, you know, we're, we're actually working for God, uh, um, you know, Dorothy Sayers says it so well, you know, uh, you know, work is our actually all ultimate worship to God. And I think for both employers and employees, it's kind of important to keep that in mind because the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And or if it is, it's just as tough to mow. 
And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I think is uh, whether you actually are uh, supervising employees or they're your employees or whether you're on the other side of that and you're an employee, I think just keeping the holiness of work at the front of our minds as Christians is really, really important in how we treat people on both sides of that equation, right? Because the leverage swings, you know, both yeah. ways, right? You know, over time and... And just if you're in a power position now, there's a good chance a year from now you won't be. And so it's really, you know, going back to what your mother taught you about the golden rule, you know, think about treating others as you'd want to be treated. And I think that really goes for both both sides of that equation. Interesting. I read a stat that 70% of people that have made great resignation changes regret it. Yeah. I'm not surprised by that, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's very logical and... Uh, and uh, uh, if you have, if you're in a situation where people actually treat you really, really well, uh, my encouragement is be loyal to that situation. And it doesn't mean you can't make suggestions or changes can't get made, but uh, there's right. always the there's always the tendency to say I want to I want to move. You heard about all those folks that had two jobs, you know, they were supposed to have one and they had two, and they just like go on Zoom calls all day and bounce back and forth and not do much of anything at any one job. But, you know, that may seem really interesting for six months or so, but, you know, that's not going to last. So. Hey, are you one of the employees Chip and Greg were just talking about? Are you overworking or maybe taking on more jobs, but not feeling engaged or fulfilled at any of them? Do you want your work to be an act of worship? Have you decided it's time for a job change or even a larger shift in your career, but not really sure how to go about it. Right now is a good time to find work, but Greg advocates being cautious about what you ask for. When it's time to negotiate salary and benefits, how do you know if you're being too demanding or leaving money on the table? And how do you know if the job you're considering is even right for you, or if you'll be one of the 70% who regret their recent job change? Well, that's where the Career Navigator program can help. We've designed a faith-based career transition program that helps you find and follow God's calling for your work life. It's filled with biblical wisdom, assessments, coaching, and best practices for getting through this season in your life. Individual and group versions are available, and we've taken hundreds of people through this process to find their next. To learn more or to sign up for a free consultation, please visit vocacenter.org slash career navigator. That's vocacenter.org slash career navigator. We'd love to talk to you. One of the things that we talked about is kind of, well, it was way after the pandemic was over in Texas, but that's been that's been the whole time. But it, for the rest of us, it was I think back in back in the fall uh, a year or so ago, we talked about some things that you did, kind of early pandemic. And I think one of the things you said that you did was you memorized the book of James. So I just wondered, you know, what kind of other things have you have you been experimenting with on kind of the spiritual side to keep investing in that? As you know, you're traveling. Like I think you said as we're in the warm up, you know, you're traveling again. Not as much, but still, you know, the rhythm has changed, and how how your rhythm of work has changed a bit. How is your personal? How have your personal rhythms adapted? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's a great question, Chip. The uh, um, the personal rhythm I had before COVID, through COVID, and now after COVID is I, and I think I've shared this. I have three other CEOs I meet with once a week. 
uh, generally on Sunday mornings from like 6.30 to 8.30, you know, before church. And uh, uh, we actually either read a book or listen to a sermon series, memorize some scripture, and then share prayer requests, share, like, you know, help each other out. Uh, we've been doing that now for, I guess, 15 years uh, this year. Um, uh, so same, same group of guys. Right now we're going through Oswald Chambers' The Love of God, the book The Love of God. So that's kind of what we're studying now. But uh, that's been a real consistent thing in my, in my life, Chip. I try not to actually change my rhythm all that much regardless of what's going on, uh, whether things are blowing and going or whether we're you know, in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, that, con- that, that consistency uh, ha- has really remained for me. And, uh, and that's been kind of a, bed, uh, a bedrock for me kind of through the, through the whole process, right? So... Uh, uh, we study different things, so so the, that changes. But but uh, but the consistency of living in community, and I just encourage everybody on the phone. If you don't have that, uh, or on the video, if you don't have that community, that kind of community, uh, find it. There's a lot of great groups there. Volca, I'm sure you can do it through Volca and help there. Uh, NCS, which is an organization Chip and I have been involved in, New Canaan Society. You can certainly find that kind of community there. Uh, or in your own, you know, your own life and, and in your community. But uh, it's important for us to be in c- consistent community. Hmm. Greg, say more about this idea of not uh, changing your rhythm despite kind of changes in the environment around you. Yeah, I, I've always just, uh, uh, maybe it's just my nature, but I've always tried to be pretty consistent in, uh, you know, having my one-page plan uh, in front of me and knowing what I want to execute. And business situations change, challenges change. It was like, how do you keep people safe from the pandemic and make sure people don't get infected? That, you know, was a challenge for a while, right? Or how do you make sure you have enough cash in case you have to shut your business down because you can't open? The government says you can't open it. The the right. those challenge the business challenges change now. It's how do I pass through price increases fast enough and how do I hire people? Uh, you know, so those are different challenges. But underneath all that, the sort of basics of faith, family, and friends, and the consistency of the connection there. I, I, to me, it's just really important for my life to be consistent in those kinds of things. And it it sounds like in some ways, though, the wisdom in it is that there's a solid, secure yeah, core of yeah, a, gravity, a focus, gravity, peace and thing in your to your life that yeah, is happening yeah. irrespective of the circumstances. Yeah. And J- in James, you know, in James one, it says, you know, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. And I think there's always that series of trials, whether they're business trials or healthcare trials or, you know, relationship trials uh, that come and go. But uh, that is part of the perfecting of our faith. But I think if you can have that constant core of your family and your, your close friends and your and your faith and your community that you're living in faith, that doesn't need to change through those trials, right? It's a huge source of perspective and solace when it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. When it doesn't change. Um, So we talked a little bit at the beginning about headwinds and the challenges of this season. What are you hopeful for? How yeah. do you think about yeah. where we are and what's what's emerging? Well, I, I, I actually think that the world is, uh, it, there's been some really interesting developments, I think. I've loved the way uh, the church has actually rallied around and actually the, uh, the world has rallied around the Ukraine. 
-hmm. right, uh, and the Ukrainian people. So it, it just feels really good to have uh, folks that have, you know, kind of, I think Germany in many ways as a country has led the way in some of that, uh, but uh, more than the U.S. for sure. But, uh, but it's been really, really great and really, you know, heartwarming to know that that kind of basis is still you know, of just human kindness and hope. And you watch what Poland's done and taking in, you know, what is it, three or four million, you know, refugees yeah. now. It's, uh, it's, it's very hopeful, uh, you know, in terms of that. So, and, uh, you know, I think on the eco economic side, ec economy's gonna come and go, right? We've been in a long expansion here, uh, but, uh, but we have a great system, a great country, and uh, by and large, it, it get, you know, we execute pretty well. So um, it, it's, th there's a lot of hope out there. And then I just see the young people. We do a lot of mentoring of uh, young, young, younger people, I guess. Uh, some, uh, young is a perspective about basically how old you are and everybody else is young. Um, but uh, but uh, and, uh, it's just fun to see the excitement and the passion in, uh, in uh, the next generation coming up for me. So I, I always enjoy that as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's great, great summary. I wanna bring Sarah and Ken in now on the conversation. I'm sure they have some questions to ask. And um, those of you who are listening, uh, we encourage you to chat in a question or two too. So we'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Sarah? Greg, I'd love to hear you talk more about how you see the war in Ukraine impacting business and the economy, because you had mentioned that you think the poor countries are gonna feel it first, feel it more. I, I'd like to hear more on that. Yeah, no, and I think we probably all read some on this, but, but uh, if you look at Russia and the Ukraine, a tremendous amount of the agricultural exports in the world, the bread, it's really the breadbasket in many ways of the world. So um, obviously, uh, we've all seen the pictures and we know that that production is not going to be the same for a while. And um, you're going to kind of see it felt there first. So you think about food and hunger, a lot of those exports, they're not coming to the U.S. per se. They're going to Africa and uh, Asia and, you know, many places that, you know, really rely on that food for survival uh, pretty much. So. There's, uh, you know, there's certainly that. And then on the energy side, uh, we consume roughly in the U.S. about 10 times the number of kilowatt hours per person as what a developing country does. But you, when, as things get, and it costs more for electricity, for, you know, power in a developing country. And you sort of think about the increases that are happening now. We're going to feel that in the United States and in, develop, in the developed world in terms of increased prices and probably an economic turndown, maybe a recession, you know, as people are putting more and more resource towards that. Um, that's the difference between having heat or not having heat for a big part of the world, right? And so uh, you sort of think about Maslow's, high, the famous Maslow's hierarchy of needs of food and, and warmth slash shelter you know, are right at the bottom of that pyramid before you get up to self-actualization. And so uh, that's my biggest worry is, is those kinds of issues kind of coming out of this, uh, this very unfortunate uh, and unnecessary um, war in the, in the Ukraine. Thanks for your thoughts on that. I, I, I'm curious to hear um, how any challenges that you experience living out a very public faith in a public company, public work environment? Yeah, no, it's a, it, that's a great question. Uh, 
I think you have to be really thoughtful in terms of how you communicate. I, I'm, I never shy away from talking about what my faith is, but I think you have to be very welcoming and, uh, and uh, an acknowledgement of other faiths as well and other people as well. So uh, um, I, I try not to be very critical of anyone uh, and, uh, and be willing to kind of share, but also willing to listen, right? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I think you got to run the company uh, for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and community for everyone. And, and, uh, and so, but I don't think that means you have to hide your own faith or your own belief structure. And I honestly have never run into a problem, you know, in that. I think that the problems come when you say, when you do a lot of the I'm right, you're wrong, you know, you're, you're, I'm good, you're bad. I mean, that should be completely out of our vocabulary, right? I mean, nobody ever came through, you know, to faith or to a faith through condensation. You know, we come from love, you know, and people knowing we care, right? So. I think that's kind of the that's kind of the difference. So I've never personally had a problem hiding any of that. I mean, tried to hide any of that or, or be any different than the person I was. And I I never really have felt any pressure, you know, on that you know along those lines as well. Not to so uh, and maybe it's because I've been fortunate for a very long time to kind of be like like pretty close to the top of the organization structure so you could have maybe more latitude I don't know but I don't think it really matters I, I think if you can just be who you are people will and 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 not negative on other people I think people will accept that yeah that's great well uh, folks we're gonna launch a poll now to find out what you want to hear more about from Greg so there's a poll just being launched go ahead and answer that and while you're answering that Greg, I just wanted to ask you, so we've been tracking with you several times throughout the pandemic, yeah, and yeah. you've talked about resilience, you've talked about you know what centers you, you've talked about the groups you've been a part of and things like that. I'm curious, what have you learned? Anything new in the last two years that, that goes into your resilience toolbox where you say, I gotta make sure to, to add this on or change this in light of what's happened the last couple of years? Yeah, I'd say a real double down and the, the statement that came to me during early on during the pandemic, I was asked, what does leadership mean during the pandemic? And I said, it's all about absorbing fear and exuding hope. And I'd say if there's anything, I, I knew that going in, right? I mean, this is something like brand new, right? Uh, but I never really thought of it that way. And I think if we sort of think about our lives now, as people are kind of going through the struggles they are, uh, whether it's with the world, you know, with what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine, with it's what's happening in the economy, with it's something that's happening in their own life. If you can step back as a leader and think about whatever you're leading, by the way, and think about how do I absorb some people's fear and exude some hope to the people that are kind of working with me. And we all know the only true hope is the hope in uh, Jesus Christ, right? So that it kind of starts there, but uh, if you back up a step, there's just a lot of ways you can say, hey, I know this looks bad, uh, but we have a plan. Here's our plan, and we're gonna get to the other side of this, and we can do it together, and you know, we'll find a, a better moment. We now have great examples, because for a while during the pandemic, it was pretty bleak. And we knew we'd see the other side of that, and I think we, we have seen the other side of that. And, uh, I think we can now go back and look at what we did during the pandemic in terms of you know some of the health items. And we can say, hey, some of those were right and some of them were wrong. 
And, um, you know, I think where the government kind of falls down or the politicians do is they feel like they need to defend what they did a year ago when they didn't actually have all the data, right? right? And I think everybody's better off to say, like, you know, we were doing a lot, you know, in our office, we'd have somebody come in every couple of weeks and run one of those machines that kind of blasted the germ killer stuff everywhere, you know, where, you know, did it electronically or whatever. And, uh, you know, now I know I don't, you know, I'd never do that again. Right. I mean, it was just not necessary. So, I mean, it, but I didn't know at the time. So I can say, hey, I, you know, I had no idea uh, that was wrong. And uh, I think the, uh, the, uh, the three most unused words in the English language are I don't know. And probably right after that are the three most uh, unused words are I was wrong, right? I, just, I was just wrong. I didn't had, a, had the best data I had. I was just wrong. And, and uh, you know, I, uh, I, I wish we could actually import those couple statements into uh, D.C. every once in a while and uh, get something a little better out of there. But, but uh, they seem to struggle with those, those basics. Uh. All right. We're, we're going to go to the poll in just a second. But you mentioned D.C. and uh, Stephen uh, chatted in a question for you. I think it might be worth uh, getting your response. Do you think that the Dems will do anything to keep the country from going into a recession before the midterm elections? Um, I think they're a little bit ham. I, first of all, I don't know that they can at this point. Right. I mean, uh, or at least can kind of stop infl inflation and all that. They kind of ignored it for a really long time and kept dumping money in. Right. So um, I think the I think there are they, they only know one lever to pull, which is like send more money. Right. Which is what causes the the spiral. And uh, and so uh, and, and I'm not sure at this point they can uh, they can kind of do much to stop the the train and kind of where the the train is uh, is going. You know, there's things they could do to be better. I actually quite like Joe Manchin in this whole thing. I think he's been so thoughtful in kind of what he said and the way he said it. But um, there's a lot, there's a, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, there's huge inter-party struggles going on in both parties right now, right? So um, uh, I think it's, it's kind of tough to, you know, move either one of them off the center. I'm a, I'm a massive believer in divided government. Um, you know, I think, you know, either side, when they control it, they screw it up. And there's a there's a there's a real blessing to sort of having, uh, you know, having uh, uh, the government be not all aligned with one party, uh, you know, in terms of the negotiations that have to happen. It feels like we're headed there in November again, which is probably a good thing for the country, actually. Yeah. OK, let's go to the poll and see what uh, people wanted to hear more from. So uh, we're seeing high response rates for uh, the highest one. This question, how to create a company culture that properly balances these two things, the employees on the one hand and profitability on the other during this potentially shrinking economy. You have a lot of experience with leading teams and leading organizations that are trying to be profitable and trying to do what's right for people. And sometimes there's a tension there. What do you see in this uh, outlook for 2022? How to balance those things? Well, I think it's very interesting in that there's, uh, there's tons of jobs available, right? Generally, when we see this situation, we have high unemployment and there's no jobs available, right? So as an employer, you have some levers you can pull to do both of those things you normally don't have in a time like this, right? Uh, and the levers you can pull is you can actually look at your organization, take out your one-page plan, set it in front of you, and ask yourself the honest question with a blank sheet of paper, what organization do I need to execute my plan? 
And normally that would actually mean when you do that, that you'll need to hire some people and you'll need to let some people go to another higher and productive use because, you know, they're not what you need to execute your plan. They might be what somebody else needs to execute their plan. And now, because the unemployment uh, rate is so low and there's such a demand for employees, you really can ask that question. And if you do need to make some changes, you know the people that you're changing out are going to land well, right? You can help them land well. And so I think this is a great time to step back and say, where do I see this company going in the next five years? And before the economy turns or anything, uh, you know, uh, and maybe it won't turn down, but, but if it does, uh, I can actually use this moment where I can help people get really great jobs, even if it's not on my team. And I, I love these kinds of moments because then you can have that conversation and you can really help somebody. Uh, and it's easier to help somebody because those jobs are available. So, and that can allow you to hit profitability a little bit easier too, because you're not, you know, it's a time to make sure you can pay people a little bit more, but maybe with a fewer people, you know, is, uh, is one way to get there. So uh, that's how I'd kind of think about that. But part of keeping a company culture good and creating a good culture is actually those people that you need to have leave, have them leave well, right? Have them leave happy, take care of them, treat them with dignity and respect. And there are moments in the economy, economic cycles, you can't do that as easily. This is when you actually can. So Take advantage yeah. of it. The second most popular question, Greg, goes back to your personal rhythms. And I was just thinking, you know, your rhythms have been very stable over the last few years, maybe even longer than that. Obviously, you found what works for you. And, and I'm just curious um, about that demand on those rhythms. Does, is, it, is there different pressure on those? Do you feel any different pressure points now than you felt two years ago, five years ago? You know, it, it feels to me like, and maybe it's just my own ego, but it feels to me like my time is always in a lot of demand. I mean, a lot of people are pressing for time. Um, and uh, so that's kind of a constant in my, you know, been a constant in my life. I think the one thing I might have learned, so, I mean, my day is very, you know, I get up at 4.30 in the morning. I work out for an hour and a half or so. I'm in work pretty early. You know, my days are pretty, you know, planned and scheduled. I try and leave a little free time each day to think and, uh, you know, and recharge. Uh, and, uh, you know, then I'll either have a dinner or I'll be home for dinner, you know, at, at night. So that part's pretty, and then my weekly group is pretty structured, you know, and I structure in family time and all that. So the time itself is, is pretty structured. My uh, uh, credit to my wife, Rhonda, she's been pushing me more and more to develop the ability to say no a little bit more, right? So I, I would say I'm, and not necessarily no, I won't help you, but no, I'm gonna help you find somebody who can help you, right? So I've been doing a better job. Uh, I, I always did some of this, but I'm doing a better job of saying, I can't help you with that, but I know three or four people and I'll put you in touch with them who can help you with that. And I, I think that's a, that's a good skill for us all to learn as leaders is, uh, you know, our time is limited, you know, anybody's time is limited, but um, it's not necessarily telling people no. It's just saying, hey, you know, what'd you think? And I've set more people up lately with other mentors, right? So they'll write in and say, hey, I'd really like to spend some time with you. And I say, I wish I had the time. I definitely would spend it with you. 
but I know somebody even better than me, and let me tell you about their characteristics, and if you want me to make an introduction. And that ends up being a blessing on both sides. You know, we all need a Paul and a Timothy in our lives. So I'd say that, that Ken, is probably the, in terms of rhythms, I'm trying to get better at the, with the encouragement of my wife uh, to, uh, you know, to be able to do more of that. So Yeah. That's great. Uh, feel free to chat in any questions that you have, uh, folks. Uh, here's one from Neil. He wants to know, related to Sam Chan's book, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, uh, any thoughts about sharing your faith in the work context that are effective? You talked about what's not effective. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think is effective? Yeah, it's interesting. So I haven't read that. I haven't read that. I've heard the, about the book. I have not read the book, so I can't comment specifically on the book. But... Um, um, I actually kind of try and create and then wait for openings. I, I call it chicken evangelism, right? So we send books out at Christmas to you know a ton of people and and uh, and pray over those and say, hey God, if there's something in here somebody wants to talk about, uh, you know, have them uh, please have them come forth. And then I schedule a lot of dinners just to ask people to tell me their life story. And so I was, for example, at a Baker Use board meeting at a plant. We did an offsite at one of our plants last week. And we had two different dinners, right? Um, one was with, uh, you know, more an extension of the senior team, but the senior team plus probably the next 20. And the other one was with actually the employees of this plant, you know, where we were at tables of like 10. There were like six tables of 10 in this, uh, in this room. And so at our table, I actually ask everybody to go around and tell, tell us your story. Tell us about your faith, your family, you know, what you do at work. Uh, just, your, you know, your kids, you know, tell, tell me about yourself, right? And then just ask questions off of that. And um, I don't know what the book says, but that actually is a very effective way. It's amazing when you ask people to talk about themselves, particularly when you ask them to tell a little bit about their faith and family. People get, I'm shockingly genuine very quickly. Uh, and I've done that all over the world. I've had Muslim groups in Doha, Qatar sitting out with... Uh, you know, uh, uh, ladies coming by with the Habibs and and uh, and had very open conversations about faith over dinners, uh, just asking people to tell tell me about yours. I just want to learn more about you. Uh, people are so happy to share that with you. Hey, Greg, are there um, are there other books that you would recommend um, in addition to this one that you mentioned? By Oswald Chambers. Uh, yeah, no, we're just reading that one now. Uh, there's a lot of great books. You know, Keller has a bunch of great ones out. I think many of you have read Tim's stuff. Uh, you know, I, I like, there, there's a few I really like. Same Kind of Different as Me is a great book if you haven't read it. It's about a homeless guy and a wealthy guy that came together and became best friends. There's a movie on it now called Same Kind of Different as Me. I read the book long before the movie, but it's uh, set in Fort Worth. It's a it's fantastic uh, book. Um, there's a, uh, a book called Where the Wind Leads, and it's a story of Vin Chung and his family. They were in uh, Vietnam. They were Chinese in Vietnam and put out as the boat people in the 70s and ended up floating around for 26 days in the South China Sea and got rescued and then sent to Arkansas. And uh, 11 kids, uh, nine of the 11, ended up going to Ivy League schools. Vin's a Harvard medical doctor now. But he writes, uh, you know, he really unpacks the whole immigration situation. Uh, not, not in a political way, just as an immigrant that came over and was blessed to be brought over. And 
it's just very powerful in this particular, you know, whether you talk about Afghanistan or, or uh, the Ukraine, you know, at this particular moment, uh, it's a it's very powerful uh, book. Those are a couple couple good examples uh, of books, and they're by the way both entertaining stories too. So uh, easy cool. reads. Now, those are the kind of things you read in your CEOs group, or are they different? That's probably different. You know, we would tend to read more, you know, a Keller book or a uh, uh, you know an Oswald Chambers book in that group, but uh, but uh, we've all read those other books as well. So. Uh, but, uh, but more, that's more, you know, I don't know, plain reading, fun story-based reading, right? So those are, they're true, but they're great stories. Inspiration, yeah. Speaking of which, your book is great, right away and all at once. Oh, um, thanks. We just uh, chatted in the link to it, but it's a great, I mean, it's a great insight into you and how, you, how you've built these rhythms into your life personally. And uh, for anybody that's leading a team or running a business, it's, um, it's required reading. Yeah, it's uh, every other chapter is about business and then about life. So they kind of correlate, the five steps kind of correlate with each other. And uh, it's pretty easy because, you know, it takes like 15, 20 minutes to read it, you know, one of those chapters and uh, you can get through, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to as you kind of go through there. Excellent. Well, Greg, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you and you just always have great things to say. You're always learning, uh, always have your eyes on the horizon. And uh, so we really, really appreciate your time and your thoughts today and so it's again thank you for being with us and uh, we want to thank everybody that joined uh, the the call uh, it's great to see everybody today uh, you can look for this conversation to be out on our podcast resilient faith at work and that, that podcast is in all the podcast channels and uh, that'll be out in a week or so so uh, thanks for being here I wish everybody a great day and we'll see you next time Thank you, guys. Thank you, everybody. Bye. If you're looking for support and counsel for your dilemmas at work, reach out to us for coaching. We would love to help you find and apply God's wisdom to your work life. Our clients consistently report a sense of relief and clarity as they work with a faith-based certified coach. You can sign up for an initial coaching conversation at vocacenter.org consult. This conversation was recorded in front of a live virtual audience, and you can be a part of that audience. Register to join us and shape the conversation with your questions. Sign up for the next live webinar at vocacenter.org slash webinar.